This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey everybody, and welcome back. So since last year, much of my work with climate farmers has been in building the European farmer community and creating connections so that members can learn from each other. Now, I admittedly don't have a lot of prior experience with this particularly, and so I went looking for experienced and successful community builders to mentor me in this process. Now, one of the most helpful and inspiring people that this search put me in touch with is Clarion Klingen, one of the primary organizers of the Dutch agroecological community called Tukumsporen, which translates to future farmers and works to strengthen the connections and representation of ecological farmers in their country. They've made commendable progress in advancing awareness of their community and hosting events that connect farmers around their country in the process, both of which are things that I aspire to do with the climate farmers community too. Now in this conversation, Clarion and I explore her own background as a farmer and what has motivated her to unite others around her. We also look into what is behind the growth and the success of Tukumsboen, as well as the collaborations and the alliances that have strengthened their efforts. I've found that the information and the experience that I've gained with my consultations with Clarion has been quite universal beyond just the particularities of the farming community. Her observations and her learnings ring true for many of the other community efforts and unification projects that I've observed and been a part of. Community building is a subject that I've long explored on this show, and if any of you are interested in learning more from a variety of other perspectives, I'll link to other episodes on this topic in the show notes for this episode. But for now, I'll hand things over to Clarion. Hey, welcome, Clarion. It's great to be talking to you again. Thanks for making time today. Hi. (laughs) So to get us started, I would love to hear, first of all, about how your growing season is going out in the market garden and how the Dutch community is doing here in the middle of summer. Yes. Thank you for that question. Yeah, the growing season is uh, very interesting because... um, since 2018, we had very dry and hot summers, relatively, uh, for our uh, uh, context. But this year, um, it was very hot and dry in, in spring, where it normally is cooler and more rain. And this year, it was very hot and dry. And then in summer, where it's normally warm and nice, now we have rain, a lot of rain. So it's a bit, um, it really, uh, the season really asks us to adapt, you know, to changing stuff. Um, so also for us on the garden, it's like that. So at this moment, we have many weeds. But on the other hand, in the dry time, we managed to uh, plant many things because we have irrigation. So I think in general, we are actually quite happy this season. And the Dutch community of farmers is um, 
of course, I cannot speak for any, uh, everyone at the same time, but I think we are very motivated, uh, very enthusiastic, but we also get more clear the, um, uh, the like the struggles, for example, long-term access to land. It's really like the problem of long-term access to land is more clear when there are more uh, agroecological farmers and agroecological farmers are already longer working. Like in the beginning, like 10 years ago, when we started our association of Tukumsbura, it was like a sort of new phenomena, that this new entrant farmers and agroecology in the Netherlands. And it was just, uh, oh, so nice, so interesting, uh, all these uh, new initiatives. But now we are like, hey, we're here. We need some space and we need the land to be there for us, like also in 10 years and 20 years and not just one year contracts. It doesn't work for us. So that's one of the things, um, but we are very, um, uh, resilient and diverse and creative. So yeah, we are we are there. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And man, there's no more adaptable and resilient population than people who manage landscapes and deal with these types of variables like you talked about all the time. But I'd like to start at the beginning and maybe get an insight on, first of all, your own personal entry into farming and then how the start of the farmers community of Tokomsporan started to evolve and, and be built. Yeah, so I studied in university, but then I realized after six years of university with a MSc degree, I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't going to make something. I wasn't going to produce or create something. I was just going to talk and produce ideas and maybe a PowerPoint as a maximum product, um, and which I didn't like. And also I saw so much inequality in the world and so much um, power uh, problems actually that I thought it would be better as a European to stay in Europe and try to give a nice example or to be very close to my opinion, like to combine my actual work, creating something or producing something, combine it really with what I believed in, which was um, actually basically pesticide-free agriculture, um, uh, accessible to all kinds of people. That's, I think, what I wanted to not only talk about, but really make and create. So that's uh, why I decided to become a farmer. But after university, this was at that time with the people around me was a very strange idea. Now it's different, but at that time, I didn't really know many people who did this. Um, so I started to work on other people's farms to discover if I really liked it. And then some years later, I started an education, which in the Netherlands, we have a vocational training where you can practically learn to become an organic farmer. Um, so that's how it all started. And then um, I noticed that I wasn't the only one. This grew over the years, I guess, but there were, were more and more people like me who had another background, who didn't inherit farms from their parents, but still wanted to be farmers, which is quite interesting phenomenon because uh, many conventional farmers are actually at this moment stopping or their children don't want to take over their farm or even some of them, they even go bankrupt. And still we new entrant people wanted to become farmers. Like it's really why, you know, and I was one of them, but I was still surprised about the others. So yeah, that's how it started. Um, we wanted to know more about us and uh, see who we were and what our motivations were, but also really to support each other where needed and inspire each other with our very diverse stories of agroecological farming. 
That's, I think, a very common motivation that a lot of people have in this sector. I hear it from individuals in our community all the time, too, that they want to connect with others, understand what they're doing, share knowledge and resources. And with that as a core motivation, how has the community grown since then? And what are some things that you've learned in that process? Yeah, so we have grown. Um, so we have an association with members, and I think like we have uh, more than 300 members now in the Netherlands of Tukumsburen. And I think this number is more or less. Yeah, so so there were in the beginning, people didn't really know what they were signing up for. Um, they were interested in our association. But now I was going to say that the, the growth has been more in um, sort of awareness and focus of the members and of us as an association, we know more what we're doing now than in the beginning. In the beginning, we were just um, inspiration. What I was saying before, inspiration was a, was a reason to start the association. But now we noticed that we need to really um, sort of speak up for us also. And it's not the main goal. The main goal is still to inspire each other. But also we need, we noticed that, for example, long-term access to land, but also other issues that we as agroecological farmers are a bit not only a bit um, different than conventional farmers, but also in a way a bit marginalized or we aren't recognized in the way that we should. This is what, what we feel. Um, so we've grown, especially in, the, uh, in knowing our sort of contribution to society in terms of what all the individual farms can contribute to more sustainable agriculture. This, we, are, we know much better now than 10 years ago. So, and also we know to talk about it more clear than 10 years ago, um, but also we know as an association how we really need to support our members and on what topics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, these types of challenges, though they are manifested in unique ways in different parts of the world are very similar to what I've heard ever since I was working with farmers in Guatemala and Ecuador all the way to here in Europe. But there are some really unique aspects of farming in the Netherlands. Some people have maybe recently seen the protests that happened a couple of years ago based on the regulations around uh, nitrogen and nitrates in the soil. But also you have by far the highest land value prices in Europe. And that goes back to the access to land things that you were talking about. What are some of the unique challenges besides or maybe building on the ones that I mentioned that are constantly being talked about within your group? Yeah, so I think What's unique in the Netherlands, I think you mentioned it uh, already, is the uh, there are many people living in a very small country. So it's on one hand an advantage because we're always close to a city. So in terms of, uh, you know, sales, it can be convenient. Access Even to though market, right? Yes, access to market is relatively, I mean, what we call local, I know that, that the definition of local or local sales and local market is, is uh, depends, of course, on the context. So for us in the Netherlands, um, we want to be actually at bicycle distance from our customers. And I know in other countries, it's That's really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the luxury uh, specific Dutch context is that we are close to cities where uh, people can or where we can reasonably ask a fair price for our, our uh, work. Um, so and on the other hand, because there are so many people living in this small country, um, they also want roads and infrastructure and buildings, uh, development uh, project to build uh, and solar panels. 
So um, the pre and nature, like the pressure on the land is really, really enormous. And if we were only, uh, if we had to negotiate and have a dialogue with conventional farmers, I would be hopeful. I would, I would imagine that we would figure it out. If there was agricultural land, just agriculture, and that was it, then we would, I think, I really think we would figure it out. Some conventional farmers, they are afraid of us maybe, but many of them, they see that what we do makes sense in the end, you know? Um, so if we would have to deal with them uh, to get our lands, it would be one thing. But no, it's not that. We have to deal with uh, solar parks and uh, other uh, parts of society that really drive up the prices. So the prices, they rise, not because of agriculture, but because of all these other um, sectors which really rise the prices. And of course, if you are a farmer family and your your children don't want to take over the farm and you're already very big in, in debts with the bank, of course, if there is this development uh, project uh, uh, stuff or, or solar panel that want to buy your land for a better price, then some strange hippie with an alternative plan of agroecological farmer. Yeah, it's so this is uh, this is the reality. So it's really tough to get land um, on good terms. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also happening in a lot of places with various types of investments. Um, yeah. Land is increasingly becoming a financial tool as yeah. a way to park money in an investment that has a pretty good return over time and definitely traditionally has been very stable. And that makes it very difficult for the types of land use activities that don't drive a high revenue, which increasingly different types of farming are not, and can't then, you know, get the space that are needed for, for the type of production that is also essential for the food system to be resilient and, you know, so many other things. Um, what do you find the hot topics within your community being? What really engages people and gets them passionate to participate in these discussions? Yeah, so no dig, no dig is really something. They really, everybody wants to uh, hear more about it. And there's this this image that if you do no dig, it's like the solution. It's amazing, a solution for all your problems, and it will be, you know, it's really amazing. Um, so this is, is this very for nice. Both gardening and for grain production, or mostly for one or the other? Mostly gardening, but yeah. I noticed that. Um, I think there are many uh, dairy farmers or arable farmers who are also like the ones who are interested in the future, like how to frame this in a nice way. Um, so there are people who desperately sticking to the old times and try to uh, just produce more pigs per hectare, you know, um, yeah. but there are also many people who uh, really enjoy farming, either organic farmers, dairy or arable or maybe almost organic or open-minded or many of there are many of them actually they're not so mm -hmm. conservative but and they're interested in interested in the future i don't know and those people they also so there are, i really noticed arable and dairy farmers who are they watch this movie we have this movie under my felt which is um basically promo movie on on uh on a dig or you know putting cardboard and then a big layer of compost and it's amazing and so those people, they, they now they want also a market garden on their farms because it's cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is so, but they don't they don't yet. I mean, on the other hand, there's this uh, also another, but I don't see it in the same way. But regenerative farming as a concept is also 
um, people also interested in it and many arable farmers and some dairy farmers try to do experiments with it. Some are really far and really say, I'm a regenerative farmer, I only do it like that or people who quit really tilling. Um, so, but this is really starting and really diverse and really also not, in the Netherlands, we don't know yet what regenerative farming is. So many people are inspired by the States, uh, grass-fed beef movement, uh, regenerative agriculture movement in the States. But in the Netherlands, there are so many differences in many ways in terms of scale, in terms of land price, in terms of market, access to market, but even climate and clay soils. I don't know. There are so many things. So we are really in the beginning of the regenerative um, agriculture movement in terms of dairy and arable. And in terms of market gardeners, it's no dig. That's really um, many people do it. And still it's new. So the real, like the 10 year experience that you want to have to really say something like this works or not, we don't have it yet. Mm. But many people are really into it, yeah. Well, that's exciting. That's really good to hear. It sounds like a general spirit of experimentation and trying new things as you know people come up to new challenges is a really good spirit to have in any industry. But you know, it's something that farming is not most well known for. Oftentimes there's a stereotype that people are kind of set in their ways and that they don't want to change. I believe that has more to do with the amount of risk that farming is already under. But the fact that you've got a very active community that is exploring these options is really good to hear. Another, and, can I add, can I add yeah, one please. thing? Um, another thing that's similar, like the way you summarized it now, the, the no dig in market gardening, there's also this very big interest in CSA big interest mm. in CSA. So community supported agriculture is also um, has grown a lot in the Netherlands. So uh, we have around 200 initiatives now, which call themselves CSA. And this was, uh, it's, it's been like in five years or something growing from like almost zero to this number. So it's really uh, uh, many people are interested in. So consumers are interested in it and producers. Um, just like no dig, it's really something what, uh, what you were saying, like uh, we as new entrant uh, farmers, we are able to think out of the box, you know, and the idea that there is nobody between producer and consumer, that there's really direct agreement on, on price and, and producing conditions. This is really also very appealing to many people. And even as I was describing before, the, the existing dairy or arable farmers who are already there, even they are very interested also in CSA uh, way of thinking. But in, in general, in the Netherlands, the con community supported agriculture, uh, the way it looks in the Netherlands in general is vegetables. Because uh, with dairy and larger scale arable, it's not yet very big. But uh, with vegetable, the vegetables, there are like 200 initiatives in the Netherlands now. Wow. CSA. So that's also very cool. Yeah, that is really cool. It sounds like there's a general spirit of entrepreneurship that is being expressed here. And I don't know how the regulatory climate is in the Netherlands. I've heard that it's quite restrictive and it's one of the more robust kind of legal systems that one has to navigate for farmers around Europe. That's another aspect of unique context between different member nations of, of the EU that often comes up in the conversations with the climate farmers community. How are your members expressing their either difficulties or support for certain regulations and navigating them in general. Yeah, I really cannot generate, gen generalize about this. Sorry about my English. So it's a very, uh, very relevant question that you're posing to me now. 
and I cannot answer for all the people. And actually, it's also um, something that we uh, have to really talk about together because um, we didn't really formulate our opinion yet as agroecological movement on CAP, for example, CAP money, CAP re regulation. The so, common agricultural um, policy, you mean, yeah. Yeah, so the common agriculture policy has several pillars and one of the pillars is direct payment. And there are many arguments I we can imagine uh, which are against the whole notion, the whole concept of direct payment, like yeah. supporting a farmer just because he's a farmer. Uh, and of course it has a history after Second World War and stuff. It, it makes sense, historically it makes sense. And we also, of course, we understand that people uh, who have farms where the part of the income is based on uh, common agriculture policy money, it's, it makes sense that they want to keep it. Eh? We, we understand this on a personal farm level. We understand that they want to conserve their money or right to to this money. On the other hand, we are not so fan of the idea of direct payment of conventional farming because it's European citizens tax money going to, let's say, poisonous agriculture, if I put it that way. Um, so we aren't re really... Um, we didn't organize any protest against this in this way. On the other hand, we do uh, hear many stories all the time of uh, agroecological farmers, members of Tukumstbura and members of other agroecological organizations in the Netherlands who really, um, they really hit the wall, so to say, they really cannot move forward with their innovative, eh, as you were saying, entrepreneurial, innovative, creative way of farming because of regulation. So in the cap money registration sort of system, like because all the farmers have right to direct payment, they have to register, uh, they have to register all kinds of things, like a lot of information they have to register. These are conditions to get the money. Makes sense if you want to get, uh, make use of this money, you have to show that you are a good farmer, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But what if you don't want this money? You still have to comply. Yeah, so this is problematic, not only for us, small-scale agroecological farmers, because we have to um, comply to this registration system, which is sometimes really problematic for us, but also for innovation in general. Let's say an existing farmer who wants to put up hedges in his grass field, just one example. But in the box of the, in the box system of the EU uh, subsidy money, there is no hedges, for example. Eh? So this is like, it's really stopping innovation. So that's a shame. And also it's weird money. Let's put it that way. It's weird money. It's not money that keeps us, that, that, that um, uh, stimulates people to innovate in a, in a good way. It's not, uh, I think it's, it's, keeping us from positive innovation. So yeah, this a is a lot of the critiques that I hear from our community too, is that it basically puts its hand on the scale of agriculture and promotes poor practices that otherwise would not be sustainable economically, but are given support uh, just for the fact that they are farms under this program. And the other real uh, regular, I guess, criticism of this is that for the most part, these regulations were created as a response for very large farms. And in order to comply with them, the economies of scale needed to meet the quotas or the regulations that come with any given farm enterprise are really not feasible for people beyond a certain size. That to do this with a few animals and get them, let's say, vaccinated or inspected by a veterinarian is represents a massive cost for someone at a smaller 
uh, enterprise level than for someone doing this at an industrial level. Have you seen that as well? Yes, it's absolutely true. So the time it costs to uh, fill this registration form, which is a lot of um, time uh, because we have great diversity, but also ah, there are so many examples. What you're saying about uh, if you want to keep some, for example, if you want to keep some animals outdoors, uh, let's say you have maybe a natural kind of animal husbandry system. Um, but if you, as soon as you milk, you have to have a stable. Even I think if you if you have cattle already, even if it's for meat, you have to have a stable. Like there's so kind, so many so many rules that are all all those rules and regulations. They're all answers to the problems created by conventional farming. Right. So also with uh, manure, for example, if I have a garden, even if it's half a hectare, and I put compost, even if it's vegan compost, I still have to comply to the manure regulation, which is a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of restrictions. And also, I, maybe I cannot even put vegan compost on my half hectare because of regulation. But the, the, the rules are there because of the pig and poultry people who flood the world with manure, you know? So it's really, uh, I understand that these rules and regulations exist. They are an answer to problems that we didn't create. So that's really a problem, yeah. Right, right. Now, I want to go back to something that is a constant point of conversation in our communities as well. And that you've mentioned a few times is a difference between conventional or industrial agriculture and agroecology. And your community really represents agroecological interests for the most part. But I'm also wondering where you draw that line and how welcoming you are to people in the conventional ag sphere that you talk about. And if that distinction is really important within the group dynamics that you curate. Yeah, it really depends on the on the situation, the context, like um, the distinction, I think there the distinction in general is not so relevant. We don't want to, I don't know, talk about negative about somebody just because he is or she is conventional. That's not, it's not about that, but it's about um, the values of agroecology that are important to us. So if those values of agroecology are also important to somebody that is that considers themselves as conventional, like it's really about the values. The values are farm autonomy. So many conventional farmers also really find this important. So farm autonomy is one thing. So we want to decide how we want to produce. We want to be able to uh, make decisions on production um, and also on uh, market. Um, uh, we, we want to be able to make those decisions is one very important thing. Um, and other things are really related to how we work with society and nature. So the image of a farmer that um, uh, is really stuck between very small profit margins because there's a lot of investment, uh, a lot of uh, capital in the farm and very little revenue. This image is what we want to get rid of or that we want to change in an image where we have uh, another ratio between the money flowing in the farm and the money that's for us, for example. So those things, so it's really about resilience, autonomy, um, and in, in, our, uh, in our work, in what we do, we really build really alliances with uh, consumers and other citizens um, rather than with bank and industry. So these are different sort of approaches to uh, create a nice farm. And um, yeah, in the Netherlands, in Europe, we have this um, organic certification, which is very clearly stating um, no chemical fertilizer and no pesticides. Uh, 
um, that's the certif certification which is very clear and which really, in my opinion, really deserves respect because of the, the meaning of it, the definition of it is um, it's in European law. European law says what the word organic means. So this is very, uh, has been very relevant pioneering work in the past, which we should be grateful for and respectful for. On the other hand, we see, of course, uh, some organic producers who are very uh, capital intensive, large scale monoculture, lot of tilling, um, and they clearly chose for the certif certification just for the money. On the other hand, there are people who don't have the organic certification for many reasons um, and who are really into our way of farming and thinking. So it really depends on the, on the situation. And, and conventional farming is not a negative word for us. It's negative when somebody is proud of buying all the land of his neighbors and proud of growing from 3,000 pigs to 5,000 pigs, then it's bad, you know, but not in general. Conventional is not wrong in general per se. So is that an answer? Question? Yeah, I like I like that way of articulating it. Um, it's something that I've definitely found both working directly with farmers and in managing our community that the lines are really blurred. There are a lot of people that perhaps implement certain practices which would be considered conventional, like you say, tillage or usage of uh, chemical crop protection products, but at the same time are working in other areas to enhance ecological services to do a lot for their local communities. I, I very rarely see farmers that are disengaged from the rural communities that they're a part of. And all of those contribute to something that is better. And it's just about, like you said, those value systems that we have in common and finding the overlap in our priorities and the missions that we care to advance. I find that there are usually way more aspects in that area that are in common, regardless of you know, the actual practices and techniques that we use in our assumptions of what is gonna get us to the results that we're talking about. That's where it gets a little more complicated. And so let's switch over to exploring a little bit about what it means to curate, manage, and engage a community like this. Because as you very well know, farming is one of the most diverse sectors of the economy out there. To say someone is a farmer is a very broad and unspecific term and can represent any number of enterprises, practices, uh, goals, and circumstances or context. And in an effort to bring together so much diversity within a community, where do you find the commonalities and the things that people really come together on despite these differences? Yeah, so we are lucky, maybe it was luck, maybe it was a deliberate choice, that in the name of our association, Tukumstbura, it means future farmers. So people still today, even though we exist 10 years now, still today people ask, does future farmers, does it mean it's for people who want to be a farmer in the future? Or does it mean for farmers who are ready for the future? And then we answer both. Mm. So many of our members, they were, um, they are new entrant farmers. Not so many aren't farmers yet. Most of them are already farmer in a way. Um, but ma many of them are new entrant farmers, but not all of them. There are also people who uh, farm in an agroecological way. Either they inherited farms from their parents and really radically changed it into a very sustainable farm, or people are already organic or biodynamic and are interested on, in our community because they want to connect with new entrant farmers because they like us because we think out of the box. They like to be in dialogue with people from the city, maybe, who really, you know, have radical new ideas. Um, so, um, 
for us it's uh, already in the name so that helps <laughs> and agroecology, agroecology is a very clear other thing um, even though it's still in the process of sort of landing in the Netherlands this concept but it's um, we can always refer to the global movement which is very strong in Latin America um, but there's a worldwide organization La Via Campesina which is um, representing the agroecological uh, farmers or the peasants worldwide uh, which has many members in many countries and Tukum is um, the representative of the Netherlands in La Via Campesina so um, people who are interested and people who want to know more about the position of Tukumsmura, maybe they easily find on our website they find the, the link you know so we represent in the in a sort of global peasant world the peasant movement and uh, defending peasant rights the united nations um had a peasant rights uh, declaration last year or two years ago uh, so those things really set the scene so people um who are wondering what we do or where we stand they can always easily find this in in that uh, international context um so it's more about uh, sharing the values than who you are so if you like our values you are very welcome that's mm. i think how we define our members in the community yeah and that's one of the things that i've learned with and from you that has been very effective in uniting the group that we have with climate farmers as well is by putting out a clear message of what it is we represent and what it is that as a group we would like to advance you know uh, for us it's mutual learning and promotion of peer-to-peer -peer knowledge exchange in our groups and you know helping others to find the support and the resources they need to accomplish their goals on their farms but also in the larger conversation in policy levels and economics and by stating something clear like that it gives us something that we can rally behind and that we can promote together however that might look different between the members themselves yeah nice i i really like thank you for that uh feedback i i like to hear it because we um this was uh, something that we learned over the past 10 years. So in the beginning, we thought we just um, sort of uh, really enthusiastic, invite many people to join uh, just for the sake of it. But we learned to really um, be clear on our mission. Eh? That's basically what you're saying, to be clear on your mission and vision. And if you invite people with that, based on vision and mission, then they understand what they step into, they understand, and then then it's not maybe quantity, even though we noticed that there is there's actually more people coming, but um, it's quality also. Like people know what they step into and you can work stronger together if you know that you uh, work on a similar mission and vision and purpose. So this really, yeah, this was really something that we had to learn. In the beginning, we thought, oh, we need just more people, you know, but yeah, it was really nice. It really discovered, we really discovered this, that we don't have to, sort of um, dilute our message. We don't need to dilute our message to be friends with anyone. We can just be clear on our message and that's actually people actually like it. Yeah, mm. so yeah that makes that. a lot of sense. When you try to please everybody, you just end up pleasing no one. <laughs> I guess, yeah. yeah. And so you mentioned too that you have a collaboration with Via Campesina, the international nonprofit organization that helps to promote peasant rights and uh, lives on rural areas and farms around the world. Have you made any other key collaborations like that? And what has been the process or the advantages of connecting in with these other networks? Yeah, so um, 
in the beginning, 10 years ago, we, we got many emails from many organizations that we didn't know whether we could collaborate or not and why and why are they approaching us. Maybe one example is the, the state uh, forest uh, company. Like in the beginning, you think, oh, they want to talk to us. But then later, like, why? Like, this has been a really a learning process. Um, so now we are very close, uh, like partners, very close friends. I don't know if this is a word to say for organizations, but this is how it feels uh, with uh, the CSA network, uh, with the Biodynamic Farmers and Citizens Association, uh, even with BioVegan network, even though, for example, Biodynamic, they really also have cats like uh, animals. Uh, so it's very interesting. But but the, the commonality with BioVegan is that we really want to uh, that we really think that ideals and a, and a strong mission and vision is valuable for societal change. So this we really appreciate in the in the bio vegan movement, uh, bio vegan CSA, biodynamic um, permaculture. Oh yeah, and organic uh, market gardeners. This is also an association of people who do have uh, organic certification and and they are small scale organic certified farmers and they have their specific struggles and fights. Um, so those are the uh, very, uh, like really very, very close uh, partners, which together we form also a federation, where we really have more or less formalized structure now to really work together. And next to that, we have many other organizations that we are acquainted with and that we work together when relevant. Um, but one example, maybe it's nice also to know that every, every year in the Netherlands, there's a um, organic fair uh, Bio Beurs, Organic Fair, I think is the English name, a uh, place where uh, organic, everything related to organic agriculture is uh, is um, showed, sort of. And there we, every year, we have a workshop uh, on, um, it's very nice, it's a farmer, uh, farmer meets farmer workshop. So the idea is, because on this uh, organic uh, farming fair, there are many... Um, existing organic farmers, for example, uh, dairy or arable, who exist for many generations, and they like to have maybe a young or new person, uh, mm. gardener or CSA or something initiative. On the other hand, many of our colleagues, they are looking for land. So we make this matchmaking thing between an existing farmer and a par person looking for land, and yeah, it's very fun. So yeah, this one other example where we have a tradition of, of partnership, which is a yearly thing. So yeah. Stuff like oh, I that. love that. Now, one of the other things around this effort to connect people in person that I have learned a ton of from you is how to get past some of the biggest challenges of bringing farmers together to meet face to face, right? Because as we all know, especially me now that I'm getting settled into my own farm, it can be very difficult to leave the land when there are so many responsibilities that need to be taken care of on a daily basis. But there's no substitute online or elsewhere for face-to-face -face interaction and the relationships and the friendships that can come from that. And you've given me a lot of insights and have some great knowledge and experience from overcoming this hurdle and bringing people together. Can you give me an outline of some of the things that have been most effective in creating events that farmers can attend? Yeah, thanks for the compliment. I'm happy to hear that. It was useful to talk about these kind of things. Um, yeah, so first, very briefly on the challenges. Um, 
So if you organize something on Sunday, people who want Sunday as a resting day to stay with their families, they cannot come. If you organize something on Saturdays, people who stand on markets on Saturdays cannot come. If you organize something on weekdays, people who have another job maybe uh, cannot come. Uh, so there's always, you always exclude people. So one trick is to uh, change this a little bit to exclude not always the same people. Dairy farmers, they can, they can they have to milk, so can only do after 10 in the morning and until 4, for example. Um, this I'm talking now from a Dutch perspective where people only need to drive one or two hours to our thing. So one, one t uh, trick is to uh, diverse the, the people you exclude. Um, we have the um, tendency to mostly organize stuff in the because many of our members are gardeners but some are tree nursery people and they feel excluded if we organize something in winter because their rest season is summer and their business season is winter so already there's a problem another thing is to combine weekday and if you have a two-day conference for example combine a weekday and a weekend day friday and saturday then you exclude two you know um and then make it uh very important i think for all kind of events with this purpose where what as you were saying there's content and there's social uh dual purpose on uh, to it uh is to really plan uh unorganized time so if you have lunch because the 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 the, the trap if you are new and organizing such events is that you I have so many ideas on speakers and topics and workshops and things and then the day is completely packed with stuff um but my really and my really strong strong advice if you have for example the lunch make it two hours if you have uh, the welcoming moment subscription entrance uh, moments thing with coffee make it an hour like people want to talk to each other in an informal way um on uh, like semi-organized so they think they come there to subscribe to the event and have a coffee but actually they want to talk to each other and then they think they want to have lunch but they, not, they like to talk to each other so this is really very important don't don't pack the the program um what else yeah beer and food of course is always important to combine content with non-content i think that's the basic that's the basic uh, most important thing to make it useful and cozy at the same time so don't choose there i mean you choose but for example two hours of content two hours of coziness i'm just saying just one example but to make a balance yeah. there is really important yeah well that goes along with one of the most surprising learnings that i got from when i was involved with organizing the first climate farmers conference two years ago and we asked a bunch of farmers like well what is your favorite part about any of the conferences or gatherings that you've been to and so many of them said going to the bar after the conference <laughs> they really do crave that social time i mean it's very hard to be connected with the larger community when you're stuck on a farm and that's the, often hand, the relationship that ends up lasting much yeah. longer that is nurtured beyond the event itself having said that if you would just uh if you would try to uh, bring people together with nothing organized just beer it's also not working. Like yeah. it's the it is it is you who put the effort and the sweat and thinking on the program of content. Because of that, they appreciated the beer. Yes, it's really important. Yeah, and that's exactly how we kind of went to planning the event. Is like, okay, how can we leave enough 
space for all of the social interactions that people really value overall, but keep enough structure in there so that it has an agenda. There are some real outcomes and there's enough of a pull to bring people there beyond just yeah. hanging out with some friends. Yeah, because that's the thing to pull people to something. There should be some spectacular content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're always figuring that out. One of the things that we're increasingly trying is decentralizing the events that we are creating and letting people to propose their own events, visits on their farms, uh, collaborate with other organizations like your own, like Agricultura uh, Regenerativa Iberica here in Spain that are constantly hosting events and workshops. And we have kind of a central calendar where anybody can post these. We go through a little screening, making sure that they're relevant for our community. But then you're always informed by what's going on as near as possible to you and with as much preparation time as is needed to be able to organize, to be able to leave the farm. And, you know, we're in the early stages of doing that, but we're getting a lot of response already. And I'm actually just in the process of finalizing the details for a community gathering and some farm visits in Tuscany in Italy to, to activate the community we have there as well. And yeah, I mean, it just comes back to this innate human need to be a part of something larger than just our own efforts and also share and learn from others who are on a similar journey to the mutual benefit of everyone. And that really is what we're continuously being reinforced and seeing is the value in communities like that. Um, well, look, we're starting to get to the end of their time, but I would love to hear from your advice and the experience in growing this community to where it's at how you would uh, advise someone who is starting or looking to start a community in their own area around agriculture, around perhaps food security or some sort of growers cooperative, what are some of the key aspects that they need to keep in mind in order to hopefully have long-term success with this? Yeah, so I think, of course, I mean, no, of course, no. For me, it seems to be logically that first you uh, investigate what people want but you can spend a year on this and a PhD on it or call to people. I mean, of course, there are many ways to do it, but uh, first figure out what are the needs. On the other hand, you can also be very motivated with a small group of people to really start something and then people will follow. Um, yeah, our challenge was to um, the balance between work structurized to have an organization that functions in terms of just membership administration and money stuff like that versus the idealism and enthusiasm about content that's a really tough thing because i'm personally a very impatient person and i get immediately sort of panicked or or bored or i really want to run away if we have meetings on treasure ship and money like this kind of stuff i just want to talk about farming you know but you have to have the other stuff organized too so this is really a challenge if you on one hand i would recommend to only work with uh, people who are farmers themselves because they we can represent us very the best way it's really not working if somebody else is representing me on the other hand farmers are busy so you cannot ask them to be treasurer you know, so it's really tricky. So this was a challenge I'm trying to, because you asked me to add for advice and I'm sharing a challenge, but this was really, really tough. Or maybe it still is tough, even though, so the, the way we got out of this sort of uh, difficulty was what I was mentioning before, that we discovered that the, the, the content, the stuff that we really stand for, that, that is really um, 
giving energy and helping us to really go for it. So I think um, the stuff that I'm describing now about our experience in organization, it will also work if you want to start somewhere, something new. It's also like that. So um, of course, it's not nice if you're one person and you write a vision and you stick to it alone. That's not nice. So, But a vision is important. But of course, it's something that evolves over time. But uh, don't be afraid to really stick to your principles. I think maybe that's the most important thing. Don't be afraid to stick to your principles. And the principles ideally should be formed by a group. And ideally, in my personal and in our Tukumsburg opinion, there should always be feedback from the members. So we really want a representative organization. So there cannot be one board deciding. So the members can uh, have a say in uh, maybe a board proposes something and then members, they can vote. Huh? This is a structure that we really like. We want to be represent representative. And this takes time. So if you want to ask other people their opinion, it always takes time and effort and trouble and struggle. But I think it's better because um, it, it's, if, it's, uh, if what you are doing is supported and carried by a larger group of people, and in the beginning, maybe they seem diverse. In the beginning, maybe you don't know what brings them together. Um, and this should become or should be the principles, uh, the, the common set of values. What are we working for? And we can have different religions. We can have different ethnic backgrounds. We even have, can have different languages. As long as we know what we're working on, what we want to go for, what are our common principles, we will uh, share energy and help each other, I think. Yeah. I love that. That's wonderful advice. And it's definitely something that I'm going to add to the very broad body of work that you have already given me and, and shared and guided this process in the creation of the community up until now. I mean, beyond everything that I've learned with this conversation, I just want people listening to understand how much mm, value and support I've received from you in my work up until this point and, and the great advice and experience that I've been able to draw from, from this work that you and your colleagues have done to build the community there in the Netherlands. And I really wanna thank you for it. It's been so helpful for me and I really look forward to continuing to work together, figuring out how we can bring our communities together for the benefit of all and hopefully offer some increased value to farmers as they are looking to exchange knowledge and uh, grow in their businesses and connect with one another like all of us need. So again, thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. Nice, Oliver. I'm very um, touched by your uh, feedback. Thank you so much for listening to my uh, <laughs> experiences and, and sharing all the smart questions. I really think we as regenerative farming and agroecological movement, I think we really need each other because it's not so evident for the rest of the world what we are doing. So I really think we need each other. And um, yeah, we make finer steps in that. So thanks, Oliver. Thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks once again to Clarion. I'll be posting all of the links that you can get in touch with her and her community in the show notes under this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. 
Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.